Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Where I think the focus should be today is on rates. How low are they going to take rates? Do they introduce tiering? And how will the markets respond to the prospect of much lower interest rates at the ECB? We've got the right guest to get this started. I'll let you bring in uh, Joyce Chang. But John, the zero hedge chart last night, which I made up years ago, but I'd forgotten about, BAA corporates, the kind of stuff you follow on The Real Yield, see it 1 p.m. Fridays on Bloomberg Television, less the S&P dividend. We are over two standard deviations low on how those rates have come in versus a stock dividend. So you're looking these at are the, unusual times. These are the bottom of the investment grade stack. They're the yeah. credits that you're looking at. And a lot of people have been worried about them because there's been a huge, huge amount of debt that's been issued by some of those companies. But actually, they've held up pretty well through 2019. I, the, the dynamics here into this drug, I mean, can I say this is the biggest ECB meeting ever? I think I can say I, I that. think you can say it's the biggest one so far this year. I don't think you can say it's the biggest ever, but I think it's the biggest uh, okay. so far in 2019. Why don't you bring in our guest here? Joyce Chang with us now, JP Morgan Securities Global Research Chair. Joyce, it's great to see you. Let's talk about the base case just quickly. We surveyed the economists here at Bloomberg. 80% of them expect QE. The median forecast seems to be to drop the depot rate from negative 40 to negative 50, and maybe you go again in December. What are the team at JP Morgan looking for? So we are looking for 10 basis points. So we agree with where the market it is right now. I think mean, more importantly, what we're looking at is what's the forward guidance? Are they really going to push out the communication to the end of 2020 before they would actually um, and and be ready to move um, sooner if they needed to um, you know, bring rates down further? And, and it's the tiering debate, what that means for the banks. I mean, how will this impact bank income and bank profitability? So we think it's 10 basis points. We think it's 30 billion um, euros on the QE for another nine months right now. I think there is some space where the market could be disappointed. But, you know, it's a transition period. So I don't think you can necessarily you know, uh, move as aggressively at this point um, as what the markets may be expecting from some corners. I've spoken to many market participants who believe the key element of today's package is what happens with tiering. Now, the ECB and the officials that are out there seem to be focused on QE, but for market participants in the speech that I speak to, it's, it's very about much tiering. on the bank income, the bank profitability, and the, is there a way basically not to penalize the bank so much for a negative interest rate? So I think the market will look at that and they'll look at the language. I'm tiering. It's over the Boston Red Sox. You, you upset? You having a bad morning? Yeah, yeah good morning. I, with the Red Sox, you're always having a bad morning. You had a great Joy, year last year. Yeah, we, okay. It was a good, good six months. I still can't believe we won. I, I'm gonna, I, I've spoken before. Kian Abu Hussein, to me, he's your most important person at J.P. Morgan. Your European bank analyst has to synthesize this for commercial banking in Europe. This meeting can't be good for the profitability of European banks, can it? Well, I think those are the longer-term questions, and we've been getting a lot of these types of relative value questions. How are you looking at the health of U.S. banks versus European banks? So that's why the tiering is really where the, the focus is from many of the market participants to really take a look at bank income. How is bank income going to be impacted? Joyce, the thing that I struggle with today for the banks in Europe, and, and for me, as for many people I know listen to this program, you'll be looking at SX7E, which is the Euro banks on the Bloomberg terminal, how they respond to the package that gets delivered today if we do indeed get the full package. In the short term, I can see how tiering helps, but it won't be too long before people start to think about 
hang on a minute, you start to offset the pain a little bit for some of these banks, but with tiering, you've just opened up a whole new range of possibilities for how low interest rates at the ECB can go. Very quickly, we could be talking about negative 75 basis points, then negative 1%. We won't care about tiering in that context. We'll just be looking at a rate that is going lower and lower at the ECB. How important is it to grapple with that issue right now? How can you have any conviction on what Eurozone banks will be if the direction of travel ultimately is lower interest rates? No, I, no, I think that is absolutely um, you know, the case. Everybody is looking at 60% now of our euro index as a negative yield on it. And um, you know, a debate on whether you know, the, the US could go to zero interest rates, eventually that China goes to zero interest rates. And nobody sees you coming out of this very quickly. And I think the discussion is going to turn to growth in Europe, not just the bank profitability, but are we seeing you know, technical recession? Joyce, I, I mean, everybody here's got a fancy mathematical knowledge of this. I love what Gina Smiley did in the New York Times today with the upside down headline for a world turned upside down by negative rates. 100% of our listeners are listening to John Farrow talk about what, John, negative 75 beeps, did you say? Well, potentially. I'm just looking at it, Switzerland at the moment. They have tearing. That's where rates are. Okay, so we get the German 10 year, excuse me, the German two year to a negative 1%. That's not healthy, is it? It's not healthy, and I think you're going to see um, debates go uh, on all the central banks. People will look at Swiss National Bank. What are they going to do? You see six out of 17 expecting a rate cut, but is that going to actually move more aggressively as well? But there's also going to be, you know, look at what PBOC is doing, look at what Brazil is doing. I mean, we've got 20 out of 22 central banks that are easing right now. So you do have synchronized easing going easing on. But they're easing into, John, and below the zero bound. It's not Way a beyond the zero process. bound. I think for money market by participants today, they hope that if the ECB moves, they only go by 10 basis points. No one wants to see more than that. A lot of people are starting to think about this concept, Joyce, of the reversal rate. And I would love for you to speak to that for us. Are we at the point in Europe right now where rate cuts are viewed by market participants as negative that could lead to potentially tighter financial conditions, to have adverse reactions by market participants and therefore negative responses, negative reactions in the broader economy. Well, we agree that 10 basis points is really what the market is expecting today. If you did something more aggressive, that might send a very different signal. I think what the market's really looking for is as you have these leadership changes come in Europe, are you going to see more focus on fiscal policy? Um, yeah, and, um, and as How you will that be affected? Madame Lagarde trots in and says we need more fiscal policy. That's the easy part. Then you have to affect more fiscal policy. Well, you need to see what <clears throat> happens around Germany on that debate. That's really the key. And I, I think you know, the question one has is whether the growth numbers are okay. going to come back. Um, you know, we're looking at PMIs now that are at 2012 levels on manufacturing. So there's a lot more concern you know, on the growth. Are, are we, this morning, are we at a point of what Mr. Diamond would call macroprudential risks or John Lipsky, I think the former uh, U.S. force at the IMF? Are we at a point where Mr. Draghi has to look at the broader summed risks and discrete risks of each European story? I don't think that we're at this point yet. I mean, we're not at a point where yeah, we were at, at the, the Eurozone crisis at all. But we are at a real inflection point about the effectiveness of the policy tools, how many policy tools are remaining, and where are we this late cycle on the growth outlook. And I think that the focus will go back to the growth um, outlook. And you know, we have now a number of major economies going into recession where the U.S., even at 1.5% okay. growth in the third quarter, is, is the best growth outlook yeah. in the developed world. George Ching, thank you so much. Thank for you, George. 
you, Morgan. Thank you to all your team for, particularly with Jan Lois, with the, really the essay of the summer uh, in uh, our world of economics, finance, and investing. You have Alberto Gallo uh, on the phone. It's important to go to Mr. Gallo on this. Alberto, uh, good morning, and and thank you again to our economics team in Frankfurt for their support uh, in this. Alberto, this is absolutely historic, absolutely original. Is this Jean-Claude Trichet's ECB? I think that uh, what we're seeing here is a complete... Um, resignation to the fact that um, quantitative easing and negative rates are going to stay with us forever, for a very, very long time. Um, the $20 billion a month is um, an open-ended asset purchase program. Yes. So um, it, it, it is essentially the QE infinity world that we were um, I, I agree. thinking about Absolutely. five, six years yeah. ago. Yeah. Alberto, this is so important. The physics of Mario Draghi, the mathematical physics that you're, uh, uh, you know, I think of others in Europe that, that have, have led on this. It's original territory without question. Does your fixed income world and the knock-on of other asset classes and the incentives to business, do they move along with full faith and credit reaction? Does the market stay linked and correlated together? Or do you suggest instabilities off this new Draghi policy? The good scenario is governments will follow up and do some spending, particularly Germany and France, because now they can essentially get paid to borrow. If you think about, you know, Germany 30 year uh, is at minus 0.07. So they're, they're, they're getting seven basis points and the 10 year uh, is at minus 63. So they're getting paid 0.63%, um, 63% to borrow with a 10-year horizon. If governments don't follow up and don't do spending, right. then you have the, the risk of creating a Japan-type economy where uh, people hoard cash because populations in Europe are aging and they right. save more if returns are lower. Well, so, well, Alberta, well said. I want to bring Paul Sweeney in here, but one more question before Mr. Sweeney wanders in. And, and, and that's, what do the Germans think of that? How does Axel Weber respond to this? I know Jens Weibens in the crosshairs right now. I stood with Otmar Issing in the nascent ECB building, the old one, years ago, and there was a Germanic feel. Is that gone? I think the issue is for Germany, there, you know, there, there's, a, there's a long debate on spending, and um, uh, we've seen improvements on, um, on the debate with a discussion around uh, exiting the, the black zero, uh, the black zero deficit, and also a green stimulus, a bit similar to you know, the green stimulus that's been discussed in the U.S. Um, the question, though, is when and how this will be implemented, because uh, the government still keeps these things as a put option. Now, for, for people in Germany, um, generally we have seen higher savings rates because when you see right. the returns going down, then uh, you, know, you, you, have, you have a pension that's, uh, that you have to fund and, and you start yeah, saving but, uh, more. Alberto, um, how big a defeat was this today for the Germans? I mean, how miserable is Axel Weber listening to Mario Draghi and reading the headlines on his Bloomberg? I think Germany is better off because they have negative yields. They fund 
uh, more cheaply. And let's not forget that Germany is the biggest beneficiary from a yeah. low euro. Um, we estimated that um, the eurozone benefits everyone. You know, there's more economies of scale. People can go across borders, uh, and companies can invest more freely. But Germany has taken over a third of the advantages of the pie right. of the benefits uh, because they have the biggest benefits from having a lower euro because of of, of exports um, of their export oriented yeah. economy. So I think Germans are, you know, they pretend to complain, but they're pretty happy about what's going okay. on with the, with the very low euro. Alberto Gallo with us, that headline from Mr. Draghi, the ECB will carry out strategic review under Lagarde. We're going to have a strategic review and let Paul Sweeney run it for us. Paul, why don't you jump in here with futures up eight and the euro 109.56 dollars stronger. Alberto, how surprised were you, if at all, about uh, Mr. Draghi's characterization of the actual meeting itself, that there was so much support for easing that no vote was needed? My personal interpretation, I, we spoke about it earlier this morning, is that the uh, dissent uh, that was uh, flagged by some ECB members in the past few days was actually a way to lower market expectations and allow the ECB to surprise with less Market expectations were very high. Some people expected 40, 50 billion a month, and there's just not enough bonds to buy. Um, but what they are doing with 20 billion for a very long time, you know, 20 billion forever, let's call it, is essentially trying to anchor the cost of spending for governments, trying to anchor the long end of the treasury curve in Germany, in France, and Italy, so that governments can spend uh, more. So. I think that Draghi has, you know, Draghi has always been able to master consensus, and uh, I think uh, in the end the compromise is um, to to um, to reduce the volatility of funding costs for governments, and then try to stimulate governments to spend, which is what the next president, uh, the next president's job will be: connect monetary policy to fiscal policy. So let's let's go there. What kind of tools are in the toolbox does the ECB president have to? incent governments to spend? Not many, but uh, the, not many direct tools, uh, but with the right instruments, you can have a combination similar to what TARP did in the US. You can have a combination of loose monetary policy with um, positive fiscal policy. Europe is taking like a decade to, to get there because obviously there's, there's a lot of moving parts. But for example, the European Union could increase its budget, uh, they, uh, the, there could be uh, green bonds or um, European Investment Bank EIB bonds that fund infrastructure and that are, that are bought by the ECB as part of the program. So this is, for example, one of the options on the table. I think next year we'll have the monetary policy review, which lasts several months, and we may see more ideas like this, which target more the real economy rather than just buying bonds in the financial market. Yeah, color me skeptical here on cutting rates and, and buying $20 billion or 20 billion euros of bonds. It's going to come down to fiscal stimulus at some point. Yet we heard from the Germans recently that there still is no political support for that. So is there, is there some catalyst out there that you think certain governments need to, to see or feel before they can really make that big fundamental shift? Unfortunately, um, in the core European countries where economic fundamentals are still better, I think the catalysts that they're waiting for are negative uh, events. For example, uh, if you had a recession next year or if you were close to zero growth, which, is, which isn't the base case, or if the U.S. 
imposes car tariffs, or if there's a hard Brexit, then uh, I'm sure you would see a, a German spending plan coming up. So at the moment, it is a put option rather than a proactive plan. Yeah. The risk with this is that it may be too little too late. So I think there needs to be a proactive plan. Alberto Gallo, thank you so much. With algebra, it's just a superb, superb uh, perspective uh, this morning. We're looking at Frankfurt and Mario uh, Draghi. I did a back of the bow tie calculation off their forecast for next year. Added up animal spirits, top line GDP in Europe would be a vast 2.2%. That does not get it done. To cut the ambiguity of that is Marcus Ashworth. He's with Bloomberg Opinion and writes exceptionally trenchant essays on the ambiguities of whatever the theme is. Okay, Marcus, here's the ambiguity. Mario Draghi affects what he will. We get a low-rate environment which accommodates business and sustains business. And the other side of the coin is Mario Draghi develops a low-rate forever strategy which breaks the back of confidence in business revenue goes down. How do you cut that over the next 24 months for European and United Kingdom business? I mean, which way does it cut? It's it's fiscal policy. We all know that in the sense that he's creating the, you know, he's doing his best to keep those plates spinning. Um, he's open-ended QE. I mean, it's the perfect uh, weapon to keep the euro in check if uh, you know, the Fed does get more aggressive on rate cuts and all the, the U.S. economy dips. That'll push the euro up and it'll kill off any, any hope that Europe has of, of, of getting out of this manufacturing recession, which it's clearly, you know, pointed right at. So, you know, he's done a, a broad brush stuff. He's kept everyone on board, super skillful, il maestro. He hands over to Lagarde with the perfect baton pass. She's got the ability to cut rates more. She's got the ability to increase um, QE. She's got the ability to widen out what type of QE. They're being much more generous to the banks with these cheap loans called Teltro. Yeah. It's, the, it's a complete package. And look, they've emphasized ever more more aggressively that it needs to be matched with fiscal policy. That's what Lagarde allegedly is skill, skillful ability to coordinate with the, uh, the your EU leaders. And that's what's needed to break that obvious uh, Dichotomy, as you mentioned it, it, it's a real dilemma. You know, you, you cut rates, but all it's done is you're digging in the hole ever deeper, and that's actually going to be better, detrimental to the economy if they're not extremely careful. It's interesting, Marcus. Just give us a sense of magnitude of that 20 billion uh, euros in terms of the bond buying. Just give us a sense of enough, not enough, just uh, more just kind of showing a little bit of show. Yeah, um, yeah, that's exactly right. It, it, it's doing it. It, it. The 20 billion is perhaps less than someone expected, but at least it is happening. It's back on the agenda. They said at the end of last year, this was it. No more bond buying. We're, we're calling a hold to QE. The backstop won't start till November 1. They're back 10 months later, therefore, redoing this. 20 billion is quite modest, but the point is, is that yeah. clearly, the, clearly the market is, pre is prepared to go to 40 or 50. It knows it's been coming. Uh, the chief economist pointed out that to have the same impact on GDP as they had with their initial order of QE, they could, could do 100 billion. Now, that's, that's in the future. He's leaving that ability to Lagarde. He's setting out all the, the, uh, the smorgasbord of, 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 right. of options to pick up on. Have you seen a vector study of if they do 20 gazillion a month, I guess is the number, 
when it runs dry. I mean, there's got to be a point out there in a vector study one year, two years, three years, five years out where there's nothing more to buy. They have to start buying Apple shares. Yeah, but, <laughs> like, the, like the Swiss National Bank that so successfully did. Look, they can buy bank bonds. They can buy green bonds. They can buy for, for how long? corporate bonds. They can keep on buying. I mean, this point is they've matched the open-ended QE with a rate cycle. Now there's none of this nonsense about, you know, six months forward or a year forward. It's it's forever until they, until just before they actually start hiking rates. So the Paul, point is they give themselves flexibility and they can alter their limits to increase it from 33% to 50% of any one issue or any one country. And they can yeah. widen out what they buy. Paul, was this, in the, was this in the textbooks at Duke? This was not. It, this is not what I learned in business school. And Marcus, I mean, it seems like, you know, the ECB may be going the way of Japan. I'm not sure that's where Mario Draghi wants to take well, it. Well, look how the, uh, the curves flattened and you've seen banks sell off quite sharply because of that. We're now, we, we could argue that they, the reality of, of, of negative rates the first time another rate cut for uh, um, three years has happened that, that that's shocked the banks a yeah. bit. But it's the curve flattening, and that means their net interest margin is going to get right. squeezed, which is what what actually, Tom, your point was initially, is that this is the, this is the dichotomy, this is the dilemma. Are you going to write on this today, or are you like calling in from Wimbledon? Uh, I'm, I'm prepping uh, as we speak. Very good. Marcus Asher, thank you so much. Very valuable. Really, I can't say enough about he cuts the ambiguities or whatever the issue is. Paul Sweeney, give me the schedule here. Is it 8 o'clock tonight when I need to watch Red Sox baseball? I think that's exactly when you want to tune in. Yeah. You but know. first, 7.30 with uh, Kevin Cerulli. Kevin Cerulli. Yeah, sure. Let's go to Mr. Cerulli now in Houston. Kevin, just because of time, I want to cut to the chase. Biden and Warren, what does the vice president need to accomplish against a senator from Massachusetts? He needs to try to stop his mom- her momentum. And that's why you've seen these pre-debate attacks coming from the Biden campaign with regards to Senator Elizabeth Warren. You've got Ed Rendell, the former governor of Pennsylvania, out in an op-ed in the Washington Post calling her a hypocrite with regards to how she has fundraised. But candidly, when I talk to supporters of Senator Elizabeth Warren, they would love to have that debate every day of the week. They feel that that just offers them an opportunity to provide a contrast between Biden's uh, more centrist approach to economics versus Elizabeth Warren's. But look for a breakout moment from one of the other candidates, the Castros, the Klobuchar's, Booker's, so to speak, to see if they can try to make what has increasingly become a three-way race into a four- or five-way race heading into the later fall. Kevin, that was going to be, that's kind of my question here. We had Kamala Harris kind of have one of those moments at the last debate, but she seems to have lost her momentum. What's going on there? Well, I think that she was unable to get to get out of the pack, so to speak, after that momentum that she obtained earlier in Miami. And when I talk to progressives, what they say is, well, her plans aren't progressive enough. And she was attacked by centrists for the plans not being set for, for the plans being too progressive. She hasn't really been able to solidify her support in any which way in terms of which policy approach she wants to take. Kevin Cerulli, thank you so much. Uh, This is the perfect guest to dovetail what we're all going to see tonight. Charles Gabriel has been doing this for a while. I I mean, Paul, you can appreciate this. Institutional investor, all-American team, 
every every year for 12 years <laughs> exactly you don't you know who did he know exactly exactly <laughs> bring in the great chuck gabriel. chuck gabriel president of alpha partners chuck thanks so much for joining us you know we've got uh, as tom would uh, suggest perhaps the first real democratic debate tonight what do you expect to see tonight what do you think is going to be the theme uh thanks thank you paul well i, I you know, I, I I do agree that there's there's probably more focus than is deserved on on Senator Warren uh, and whether she uh, you know might really uh, either a, uh, have a bit of a tiff with Bernie Sanders because it's pretty clear that you know the vice president has about a quarter of the vote and has been very very steady but doesn't really generate a lot of enthusiasm with uh, because he's moderate. Then you've got at least a third of the vote with. Uh, with Senator Warren and Senator Sanders, which really is very much more on the left side of the party wing. And then you've got, you know, a bunch of others that would be moderates. The two would be moderates and Kamala Harris and Buttigieg, but they can't get more than high sing- mid to high single digits. And then you've got a lot of others that, as, as you mentioned, that uh, like O'Rourke and Booker and Klobuchar, Castro and Yang, that you know, they'll, they'll swing away. But so far after three debates, it doesn't seem like any of those are going to break through. So this is... We're just going to see if Mr. Biden makes any mistakes, uh, if Senator Warren really, uh, if there's any pileup on her. She, one, of the, uh, one of the great headlines I saw was that she arrives at this debate with great momentum, but a, uh, you know, a target on her back. Uh, and then, you know, we'll, we'll see about that, that middle. Right. But, you know, it's a long way, 419 days, 14 months till the election. Oh, thanks for reminding us. We're to presume yep. that, 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 that Trump might lose the election. So Wall Street's not particularly concerned yet. So Chuck, as, as you talk to your investor clients and, you know, you kind of, you know, kind of game this out a little bit, we've got uh, former Vice President Biden uh, kind of with a lead here. If he or someone like him were to get in office, do you, have you identified kind of sectors that would be winners and losers here? With, with Biden? Yes. Yeah, I think, Senator, I, I think Vice President Biden is, is more the same uh, from the Obama years. So I, I think that they're probably... Uh, would, there would be some relief in the healthcare sector. Uh, you know, there would there are those that would benefit from, uh, you know, expansion of, of, of basically Medicaid and Medicare under, uh, you know, the old Obamacare. So I think that you'd have some healthcare sector winners. Um, you'd have you'd have some relief probably. Uh, you know, it, it, it wouldn't be as negative for yeah. the energy sector, uh, for instance. But other than that. You know, it's, it'd be just sort of a return to Obama-type administration, and, it, and the, the big deal would be whether or not he'd be dealing with a continued Republican Senate, because if that's the case, we're looking right. at probably blessed gridlock. I, I mean, blessed gridlock, there was a time, Chuck Gabriel, where you and I would talk, and I have seven policy things to talk about, and we'd only get to three or four. Now there's zero. Does your world really matter at this debate? I mean, does policy really matter in the great culture war known as America? No, I don't I don't I really don't think so, but I but I think that those that are looking ahead trying to skate to where the puck is going to be uh Tom, you know, I I think that they're they're eyeing Senator uh Senator Warren in particular because, you know, it's pretty clear that all of the Democrats are on sort of on one side or the other, you know, of Medicare for all and a Green New Deal. Right. So there's a pretty clear challenge and, and, and a transformative story ahead in energy and, and health care. Okay. But she would create a threat, third leg of sorts, a third leg of a stool, taking on Wall Street itself 
uh, and she knows how to do it. She knows where the pressure points are as a former TARP commission chairman and a, and a Senate okay. banking member for, for now seven years and counting. So I think yeah. that there's, there's concern about what ascendancy of Warren could mean for Wall Street yeah. in particular, but it's far too early to really get I mean, I, I could go on about Wayne Gretzky and I asking you if President Trump is the, is the second Wayne Gretzky, but we won't go there. Chuck Gabriel, as always, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate having him on with Capital Alpha. We'll shift gears now with a look at the life and legacy of an oil giant, T. Boone Pickens, the Texas oil man, billionaire energy investor, and television pitch man for wind and natural gas powers, died of natural causes following a series of strokes in recent years. He was 91. We get more on the famous and controversial businessman now from Bloomberg's Bob Moon. There's a temptation to use the word legendary when describing T. Boone Pickens, but out of respect for the sensitivity he expressed about the term, you won't be hearing it here. He figured it was just another way of saying he was old. You know when legendary came into it, when I was 75. <laughs> Thomas Boone Pickens Jr. was born in 1928 in the cow town of Holdenville, Oklahoma, near the Greater Seminole Oil Field, which had been discovered a year earlier. The family's roots in England intersected with those of Daniel Boone. He said his grandmother counseled him to never forget where he came from. Pickens would recall his first lesson in growing a business was delivering newspapers. One day, he was handed a windfall when he found a lost wallet that belonged to a customer who gave him a reward of $1. That was big money because my paper out had 28 papers on it, and I made every day one cent per paper, net. So I was making 28 cents a day, and let me tell you, that wasn't peanuts, 28 cents a day, and I wasn't throwing it around either. I, I saved it. He said when he arrived back home waving his reward money around, his mother and grandmother insisted that he return it immediately because they said they weren't going to see anyone rewarded for simply being honest. It was a formative lesson that the head of his alma mater, Oklahoma State University President Burns Hargis, says Pickens never forgot. Boone is a very honorable man. He keeps his word. Which might sound like a contradiction for a man who achieved fame and fortune as a corporate raider, making hostile takeover bids in the 1970s and 80s. In his first job after graduating in 1951, he followed his father into the oil business. He worked three years for Phillips Petroleum, or as he later told it, he was troubled by the waste and inefficiency he witnessed. He quit Phillips in 1954 and formed a company that would become known as Mesa Petroleum and would grow to one of the largest independent U.S. producers of oil and gas, going after takeover targets, companies that Pickens believed were inefficient and undervalued. Some industry executives branded him a pirate, but they couldn't dismiss him as an outsider. This is a man who was one of the original wildcatters and amassed a huge amount of oil and natural gas resources. He was really someone who just saw the future. Bloomberg reporter Alex Steele notes, though, that his visionary image suffered big setbacks when oil prices plunged with the financial crisis and his grassroots campaign to wean America off OPEC oil by building wind farms proved to be a costly miscalculation. Earlier than most people would have thought, and we're talking 07, 08 in Texas, he had a huge push uh, for wind turbines. I'm T. Boone Pickens. 
I've been an oil man my whole life, but this is one emergency we can't drill our way out of. He later lamented that he lost hundreds of millions of dollars with his mistimed bet, gone with the wind, even as he continued to support the future of renewable energy. In his 2008 memoir, The First Billion is the Hardest, and in interviews, Pickens would point out he actually earned most of his wealth as an energy investor in his later years. You know, I didn't do that till I was 70. It was after 70 that I made that first billion. When Forbes estimated his net worth had slowed to less than a billion dollars in 2013, Pickens tweeted, Don't worry, at 950 million, I'm doing fine. But he vowed he would try to make it all back. He told Bloomberg Television in 2016, anyone could do it with enough hard work. I've had people say, well, why don't you step back and let somebody else get up to the feed trough? The feed trough in America is it's infinity. His health failing, though, Pickens decided to close his Dallas-based BP Capital hedge fund early last year, writing on his website that he wanted to invest instead in promoting unbridled entrepreneurship and philanthropic and political endeavors. Former Oklahoma Chief Supreme Court Justice Steve Taylor says that became his new passion. He wanted to enjoy the fun of giving away money and seeing what happened with that money. Scholarships, football stadiums, engineering schools, hospitals. His fans will miss his homespun tips for success that came to be known fondly as boonisms. I always say work eight hours, sleep eight hours, be sure they're not the same eight hours. Asked in one of his last interviews for his favorite boonism, Pickens offered this cautionary counsel. The higher the monkey climbs the tree, the more people can see his, and he used a three-letter word for backside. T. Boone Pickens was 91 years old. I'm Bob Moon, Bloomberg Surveillance. Bob Moon, that was a fantastic uh, retrospective on the life and times of T. Boone Pickens. And what amazes me, Tom, is just the the roller coaster of his career and how he was able to come back after some just some amazing setbacks. He and I would talk about Oklahoma A&M, now OSU. And he was at College Station when my father was there. Texas A&M? <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, my father would laugh about him. He was a basketball guy. He made 25 bucks a month. And in the 12th Man Magazine, what for A&M, they say the 10 worst mistakes in the history of A&M was letting Boone Pickens go north. <laughs> That's I mean, right. it was great. He said he was a character. That's all right. you know. Yeah. They weren't close friends, but he knew who he was. He was right. like big man on campus. I think he was maybe a year or two ahead of my father. But right. uh, A&M has never forgiven giving him up to the, the, the folks up in Oklahoma. Yeah, exactly. And he's been certainly a, a wonderful benefactor, wonderful supporter of Oklahoma State University and certainly their athletic department. Remember the fear of Mesa? Remember yeah, sure. Mesa That's was it. like, you know, I, I, I really can't say folks enough where he almost invented. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit like Mr. Singer and Elliot now. Yep. Maybe he's an equivalent. Yeah. I mean, I came on Wall Street deal. in the mid 80s and that was just when the whole corporate raider thing was really and junk bond financed raiders. And uh, there, there were a handful of them. But T. Boone in the energy space, he was uh, yeah. the a big player in that space, really kind of reshuffling and a lot of the energy assets at that time and putting the fear into CEOs and boards as well. We've we done no corporate chat today. I mean, at <laughs> home last night, I had, you know, various offspring saying, I like the yellow phone. I like the pink right. phone. <laughs> right. yeah. I like, I mean, what does Tim Cook know about my family? I don't know. 
Exactly. So, you know, it's Apple is, uh, you know, they're going all in on their services business. And, uh, you know, so we're seeing Apple TV, we're seeing Apple gaming. I know you're going to be gaming your uh, away on your Apple device. What is that about? What's it called? (laughs) Arcade or something? I think so. Yeah. We'll have to get Matt Canterman on to kind of explain it to us. But, uh, you know, they're getting into just it's not about devices for them. It's uh, obviously about trying to drive the services on the devices. And they've got over a couple, you know, over a billion of them out there. So certainly some uh, some upside. We'll see. It's been an extraordinary day. Thank you to Colin Tipton and all our team, particularly our team in Frankfurt, Germany, uh, Matt Miller, and of course, all of Bloomberg Economics in Europe for just extraordinary team coverage of what we saw in the ECB. Mr. Draghi did not disappoint. It was wild there at one point. Markets have eased back a little bit. I want to make that clear. The euro stronger on the headlines and then dropped like a rock. Almost down, I believe, to where we were intraday lows earlier in the month. And we've come back nicely now. Euro dollar 110.33, sort of a sigh of relief. Is uh, To me, the headline is uh, not uh, QE out to 2020 or 2021, but is very terse language for as long as it takes. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.